Good morning again. Thanks for joining us here at Prairie View Christian Church. We appreciate you being here. So two weeks ago, we asked the overarching question that all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, were all written to address. And that question is this. Who is Jesus? It's that simple. Who is Jesus? In John chapter 1, we got lots of answers. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The Son of God. The Messiah. Him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. The King of Israel and the Son of Man. It seemed like the people that we met in John chapter 1, John the Baptist, Andrew, Philip, Peter, and even Nathaniel, after a little bit of convincing, were all pretty eager to believe that Jesus is no ordinary man. But not everyone in the Gospel of John will respond so positively to Jesus. Last week we saw that Nicodemus, a genuinely curious man, a well-respected teacher of Israel, left Jesus' presence confused. And as we'll see this week, some people were downright hostile to Jesus. And it all starts this morning with a seemingly harmless healing at the side of a pool. So open up to John chapter 5, verse 1. Feel free to use our Bibles if you didn't bring one, and take it home if you don't have one. But before we read, let's pray. Father, again, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we have together. And Lord, I pray that you would help us answer that question of who is Jesus. Uh, As we're going to see in a few minutes, our response to that question means everything. Thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to answer that question. Uh, Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word, that you've given us these four gospels. You've given us the gospel of John to answer the question for us. But Lord, I pray that you would help us to have ears to hear what the gospel of John has to say. Uh, Soften our hearts and open our minds to the answer to this question of who is Jesus. And maybe some of us have already answered that question. Uh, We've answered that question a long time ago. But Lord, I pray that you would give us good reminders of who Jesus is. And if there are people in the room who don't exactly know how they would answer that question, uh, I pray that your word would teach us and guide us and give us answers today and that your spirit would be at work in helping us know and believe and trust in what your word tells us about your son. So again, thank you for Jesus. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your word. Thank you that we can call you our father. And thank you for the opportunity to be here and worship you today. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in John chapter 4, Jesus meets a woman by a well. And the woman appears to have been an outcast. And through her conversation with Jesus, we also learn that she was, shall we say, promiscuous. But the most concerning thing about her, by far, 
was that she was a Samaritan. There had been centuries of ethnic and religious tension between Jews and Samaritans. As a result, most Jews would have avoided the area entirely. But Jesus doesn't always do the expected, does he? And of all people, this woman, outcast, promiscuous, Samaritan, believes in Jesus. We'll come back to her later. John chapter 5, starting in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem, by the sheep gate, a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, Jesus said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I am going, another steps down before me. And Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. At first glance, this seems like a relatively standard, run-of-the-mill, par-for-the-course miracle of Jesus, if there is such a thing. A man is paralyzed, so he can't get down to the pool that supposedly had healing powers. So Jesus heals him instead. Not by helping him down to the pool, but simply by speaking. The man gets up, picks up his mat, and walks away. Simple enough, right? Well, this is a great feat, isn't it? It makes Jesus look good, and the man is healed. Seems like a win-win. What's not to like? This should be cause for celebration. Anyone who sees this should recognize that Jesus is no ordinary man. But not everyone is quite so pleased. Why in the world not? John chapter 5, picking up in verse 9. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath. And it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walked. They asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now, the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, 
My father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now that day was the Sabbath. That's your sticking point. Every Jew understood that according to God's law, work was not to be done on the Sabbath. Later interpretation of God's law laid down 39 specific categories of work. One of which was carrying your bed. And wouldn't you know it, that's exactly what Jesus commanded this man to do. It's almost like Jesus was trying to start this confrontation. So the Jews begin their interrogation. And after the man who was healed, who, by the way, doesn't come out of the story looking very good. After he spills the beans, the Jews pinpoint Jesus as the problem. So this all started as a conflict over Jesus's supposed disobedience to God's law regarding the Sabbath. But as we see in verse 18, it has quickly become about much more than that. The bitterness and the outrage that the Jews harbor toward Jesus is no longer about some random dude carrying his bed on a Saturday. It's about Jesus calling God his father. It's about Jesus having the audacity to make himself equal with God. And that is blasphemy. Deuteronomy 6, 4, and 5 made it clear. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. Every Jew knew those verses. Every Jew repeated those verses. Isaiah 40 verse 18 adds, To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Well, Jesus seems to compare himself to God. Verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the father doing. For whatever the father does, that the son does likewise. For the father loves the son and shows him all that he himself is doing. And greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the son gives life to whom he will. For the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son, that all may honor the son just as they honor the father. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. I'm going to repeat that because that is a key statement in this passage. Whoever does not honor the son does not honor the Father who sent him. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. 
He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So in just 10 verses, we have three separate truly, truly statements. Truly, truly. Number one, verses 19 through 23. Jesus claims to live in perfect unity with God. Jesus does what the Father does. As the Father gives life, Jesus gives life. Jesus judges because the Father tells him to judge. Jesus and God are in perfect alignment. There is no rivalry, no power struggle, no disagreement between them. Jesus has a unique relationship with God that no one else in the story can claim. A relationship of perfect unity. Now, truly, truly, number two, verse 24. Jesus claims to be sent from God. And because Jesus is sent from God and exists in this perfect unity with God, He says that all who listen to him, all who believe in him, will have eternal life. You can imagine Jesus' opponents really starting to clench their fists right now. And then truly, truly, number three, verses 25 through 29, Jesus claims to have the power of God. Who else can speak life to the dead? Who else has life purely in himself? Who else has the authority to execute eternal judgment over both the living and the dead? That's God's power and God's power alone. But Jesus claims that God has given that power to him. He even has the boldness to add, do not marvel at this. Why are you so surprised about this? Don't look so shocked. So if the Jews were mad at Jesus before, think about how they must feel now. Jesus has taken a dispute about a guy picking up his bed on the Sabbath and made it into something far greater Jesus has intentionally, it seems, made a relative molehill into an undeniable mountain. He has kicked the hornet's nest, knowing full well what he was doing. And rather than heeding the Jews' warnings about blasphemy or backing down as a result of their persecution, Jesus has doubled down. 
actually tripled down on his claims to equality with God. So what in the world will the Jews say in response to that? Well, we don't know. Because right when you expect the Jews to offer their rebuttal, Jesus keeps talking. And as he speaks, Jesus lays down the gauntlet against those who have rejected him. Verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. But there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the test and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet, you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you. Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? So Jesus made those three truly, truly statements in the previous verses. And here he calls three witnesses to prove the legitimacy of his claims. The first witness, a prophet, John the Baptist, verses 32 through 35. The Jews listened to him for a little while, but ultimately rejected his testimony. And if you read the Old Testament, this is sadly nothing new. God's people didn't have a sparkling track record of listening to God's prophets. The second witness, verse 36, is miracles. That's what Jesus calls the works the Father has given me to accomplish. If we go back to a moment to the man paralyzed by the side of the pool, can we talk about the fact that the Jews didn't even acknowledge the miraculous healing that had happened right before their eyes? 
This man walks up to them, and all they can think about is the fact that he took up his bed. All they can think about is the law. All they can think about is the Sabbath. And while we're at it, let's go back to chapter 4. That woman by the well, a Samaritan, came to believe in Jesus through a conversation. But these people, God's chosen people, with a clear-as-day miracle right in front of them, are totally blind to who Jesus is. That tells us something about the hardness of heart that Jesus is dealing with from his opponents. So the first witness is John the Baptist. The second witness is Jesus' miracles. The third witness, verses 37 and following, is Scripture, which at that time is the Old Testament. God gave his people Israel his word through Moses. And those opposed to Jesus take their study of God's word very seriously. They take very seriously their obligation to uphold it. But somehow they miss that it all points to Jesus, the man standing before them. Jesus had no problem claiming that the Old Testament is ultimately about him. So in accusing Jesus of blasphemy, persecuting him and seeking to kill him, Jesus' opponents have rejected all three witnesses. They've rejected God's prophet. They've rejected God's miracles. And they've rejected God's word. In doing so, they have rejected Jesus. And if Jesus is right, if he really is God's son, if you do not honor the son, then you do not honor the father. When you reject Jesus, you reject God. When you reject Jesus, you reject eternal life. Now, two more questions. First, did Jesus actually break the Sabbath? More specifically, did Jesus fail to uphold God's law? That's important to ask because elsewhere in the New Testament, Jesus claims that he came to fulfill God's law. So the technical answer, no. God's law did not specify taking up one's bed as a violation of God's commands. That was a later interpretation, a later application of the law. But the bigger answer is this. As we learn elsewhere in the Gospels, Jesus, as God's son, is Lord of the Sabbath. Wise man being miraculously healed is good no matter what day of the week it happens on. And lastly, in the same way that God in a sense, is always working, sustaining and upholding the universe that he made. Jesus can always work as well, even on the Sabbath. 
The second question, though, is did Jesus actually commit blasphemy? That's a serious sin. A sin that God himself is worthy of death. The answer, no. If anyone else said what Jesus said, then yes, that's blasphemy. It's only blasphemy if it isn't true. And in Jesus' case, it is true. He is equal with God, in perfect unity with God, sent from God with the power of God. John the Baptist, Jesus' miracles, and Scripture all testify to it, whether Jesus' opponents accept it or not, whether you or I accept it or not. So once again, the overarching question we ask this week is this. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And after everything we've read today, we have a more detailed answer than we did before. The artist's portrait of Jesus is continuing to be developed. The question that remains to be answered is, will Jesus' opponents believe it? But the more important question is, do you believe it? Now, you may be wondering, why is God so concerned? Why am I so concerned? Why are all these people so concerned with what you think about Jesus? Don't you have something else better to do? Don't you people have lives? Why is this question so important that the Holy Spirit inspired four different authors to write four different books, all with unique angles, perspectives, details, additions, subtractions, and emphases, all answering the same question? Who is Jesus? Well, God is concerned with what you think about Jesus. I am concerned with what you think about Jesus. Christians are concerned with what you think about Jesus because Jesus is the only way of forgiveness for sinners. As he told Nicodemus last week, Jesus must be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. As Jesus told the woman at the well, he is the source of the only water that can nourish you in eternity. And as Jesus told his opponents today, he is the only way to pass from judgment and death to salvation and life. God is concerned with what you think about Jesus, because when you reject Jesus, you reject him. As Jesus said in that important statement earlier, whoever does not honor the son does not honor the father who sent him. Your response to Jesus of Nazareth means everything. It means everything. You know, we sometimes struggle with this idea because we know wonderful, kind, humble, loving, generous, and hospitable people who do not believe in Jesus. Are we really going to sit here and say that such great people do not have eternal life? 
C.S. Lewis addressed that question, writing this. Niceness, wholesome, integrated personality, is an excellent thing. We must try by every medical, educational, economic, and political means in our power to produce a world where as many people as possible grow up nice. Just as we must try to produce a world where all have plenty to eat. But we must not suppose that even if we succeeded in making everyone nice, that we have saved their souls. A world of nice people, content in their own niceness, looking no further, turned away from God, would be just as desperately in need of salvation as a miserable world, and might even be more difficult to save. For mere improvement is not Redemption. Though redemption always improves people here and now and will, in the end, improve them to a degree we cannot yet imagine. But God became man to turn creatures into sons and daughters. Not simply to produce better people of the old kind, but to produce a new kind of humanity. Or, as Jesus told Nicodemus last week, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Our salvation is not decided by our dedication to Scripture. As we saw, the Jews search Scripture earnestly and yet miss the point. Our salvation is not decided by our dedication to religious zeal. It's not about our moralism. It's not about our niceness. Our salvation all revolves around. There's one more proof to who Jesus is that was alluded to today. And it will become more clear as we continue reading in the weeks ahead. And that proof is resurrection. Really, the resurrection is the ultimate proof of who Jesus is. The ultimate proof Of what Jesus had done. It's also been said that Jesus' resurrection is the very first thing that we must wrestle with. Did Jesus rise from the dead or not? Because if you can believe that, then everything else in the Christian faith eventually follows. So who is Jesus? Is he everything he says he is? Did he do everything he claims he did? Think and perhaps pray before you answer that question. Because your answer means everything. Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom to answer the question rightly of who is Jesus. As we see with Peter when he makes the good confession, when he says that Jesus is Lord, Christ, Son of God, Jesus tells him that Peter did not come to that conclusion on his own, but rather you and your grace, you and your kindness, you and your mercy gave that to him, revealed that to him. And in the same way, if we try to answer this question on our own, 
even with lots of information and lots of education and lots of theological know-how, if we try to answer that question by our own power, with our own smarts, we will inevitably fall short. We need your help to understand who Jesus is. And you've given us that. You've given us your help in your word. And so, Lord, I pray that your word would be at work in our hearts and in our minds today. Again, whether we answered the question a long time ago of who Jesus is, or whether we are still wrestling with the question, I pray that with the help of your word, by the power of your spirit, we might come to the right conclusion, that we too might proclaim that Jesus is Lord, that we might honor you by honoring your son, and that we might have eternal life by your grace. Again, this is the most important question that we will ever answer. There are all kinds of other questions we will face in this life, and they all matter. So many of them matter greatly, but none of them carry eternal consequences the way this one does. And so, Lord, I pray that all in this room would come to the same conclusion, that you are Lord. Again, we love you. We worship you. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for what you've done. We thank you for the proofs. And I pray that we would come to the right conclusion about who you are and that we would be saved. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.